listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast. An independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 228. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Böckmann. See ya. Your only remaining co-host. Yes, I'm here. Hey, son. Hey, son. Yeah. Do you? Oh boy. Did you really need to remind me of that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. We're very saddened by Yelena leaving the show. Yes. But uh, it's an understandable decision on, on her part. Sure. Yeah. But it was That's... the end of an era, I think. Yeah. So I guess it's up yeah. to us to start a new one. Yeah. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone uh, for expressing. Uh, their their similar sadness over Yelena's uh, departure. And uh, some people even asked us uh, about our plans on how to move on, uh, how to uh, go forward. One thing is for sure, the show is here to stay. Yep. We're not going anywhere. We're going to keep doing the show. We try not to bore you uh, with <laughs> just the two of us. Uh, no. But we haven't made any uh, specific decisions uh, regarding a possible new host or hosts. Um, that can join us. What we agreed uh, to do is uh, uh, sooner or later we will start having guest hosts on that we've done in the past as well. And I think it worked quite well. Mm -hmm. And um, who knows what the future brings. We're just going to make it up as we go along. Yeah, yeah. And we, we don't want to make any commitments just now. But I think this is the time when it's the most important for you, dear listeners, to give us some feedback. Mm. So if you have any ideas, if you want to give us advice uh, on how to move on, we won't be offended because we basically do it for you, not not just for ourselves. Mm. I mean, we do enjoy it very much. Uh, I think <laughs> I can uh, speak for both of us, mm. but it's, it's basically to serve an audience that uh, we want to do it. So we don't really want to make too many changes either. So we'll try to be flexible and uh, try to provide a good show. Yeah. So um, since we've prepared a lot of things for our listeners this week, I think we should uh, probably move on. Yeah. And uh, oh, Yes, we better do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crack on with the actual show. Mm -hmm. All right. As usual, we start by talking about something that happened this week in the history of skepticism. 646 years ago, uh, on the 24th of June, 1374, Something very strange started in the town of Aachen in present-day Germany. And since this prosperous city was a coronation place for Holy Roman Emperors at the time, walking in the footsteps of Charlemagne, several chronicles attest to these events that are now referred to as the outbreak of dancing mania or dancing plague. Yeah. Several other names have been given to these weird, seemingly epidemic set of behaviours, as people have called it uh, choreomania, which is basically Greek for dancing mania, so it's the same thing, St. John's dance and St. Vitus's dance. But epidemic chorea and epidemic dancing are also among the expressions uh, used for the phenomena. But what is it really? <laughs> well, the correct answer is we don't know. Modern science has not managed to determine the cause, uh, but according to contemporary accounts, it was an outbreak of uncontrollable dancing. This may sound something absolutely funny, Except it seems to have been quite a serious condition that led to numerous deaths as well. 
a lot of really weird shit was associated with the Dancing Plague. First of all, it was completely involuntary, with some twisting and whirling going on, with reports of injuries as well, uh, in part as a as a result of the contortions that followed, uh, which which sounds really really painful. Uh, but several accounts uh, mentioned that most of the victims were unconscious or in a somewhat altered state of mind. Uh, almost entirely out of control of their actions. That is a common theme. So, all things considered, it wasn't very much like dancing. It was, it was more like a wriggling, twitching, jerking, quivering kind of nightmarish behavior that, in some cases, lasted weeks. Eventually, crazy killing the victim due to exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah absolutely crazy so it's 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 a, absolutely a nightmare scenario i wouldn't want to be there and experience that and worst of all it seems to have been contagious with several hundred people being involved and at the onset of this disease-like phenomenon people started acting very strangely some of them undressing out on the streets some even experiencing such a sexual drive that there are accounts of people having sex in public as well well this might not be such a big deal in the age of porn but <laughs> back then in medieval times when the church was in control it was absolutely unheard of and definitely frowned upon and not only that but in fact it was a punishable act imagine the sight of such a thing going through a city yeah it must must have been very very scary so this outbreak in Aachen uh, that we celebrate the anniversary of, uh, <laughs> was um, neither the first nor the last time this this uh, happened. Uh, but it was definitely among the most notable of uh, several similar occurrences that uh, took place across Central Europe, uh, somewhere between the 7th and the 17th centuries. Uh, so it, it was going on for almost a millennium. Wow. So in each case, local authorities were absolutely clueless of how to deal with it, what to do, and they were obviously unable to stop it. No wonder it was among the, the most popular conclusions that these people were actually possessed by the devil. Hmm. I think it was an understandable conclusion uh, back at the time. At the time, yeah. And a lot of these people were affected. Uh, in some places, the number of people uh, affected by this phenomenon amounted to a few thousand, even. <laughs> uh, many of whom died. At one time, in 1518, in, in uh, Strasbourg, as many as 400 people fell victim to this mysterious disease. And by fell victim, I mean died, which is quite a big deal. So, since there are numerous accounts in several contemporary documents spanning across a whole millennium, as I said earlier, researchers treat the occurrences of these outbreaks as facts. So, we don't really have a basis to dismiss the actual factfulness of uh, these events. What remains to be answered is the question of what caused them. There are multiple theories to it, being just a social phenomenon, uh, including mass hysteria, religious ecstasy, or just a relief of stress, which is a, hmm. a weird way of uh, relieving hmm. stress. Uh, but uh, some uh, webpages even uh, suggested that uh, probably the Second World War would have been uh, the, the best time to do that, to just go out on the streets and, and start dancing. But it didn't really happen, but at least not to our knowledge. But the most intriguing among uh, the competing ideas are those involving known medical conditions uh, that range from tarantism, 
which is being bitten by a tarantula, all the way to serious neuropathological issues. One of the latter is called Sydenham's chorea, in which chorea refers to the dancing, um, and is caused by an infection with a specific type of Streptococcus bacterium. Uh, but even though it can result in movements very much like the ones explained by those medieval documents, it is predominantly a childhood disease with several months of uh, latency. So, so it really not a, it's really not a good candidate for such a fast-spreading disease. Yeah, it wouldn't explain the public sex either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can lead to very serious neuropathological things, but it doesn't explain it. The other interesting theory which seems to be widely considered the most likely, actually, blames dancing mania on a toxin that the fungus Claviceps purpurea produces. That fungus is also called rye ergot. I don't know if that sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. And the name comes from the fact that it grows on rye and uh, other related plants. So that is the most probable form of contact with rye for people. And it causes a condition called ergotism due to the alkaloid ergotamine uh, that can cause multiple issues with uh, neurotransmission, resulting in pains, numbness, paralysis, weird tremors, hallucinations, and all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> I, th I think that's the scientific explanation. It was crazy shit. I, I agree. <laughs> crazy shit. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, fun fact, fun fact, ergot contains lysergic acid as well, which is a precursor for LSD oh. uh, synthesis. Yeah. Anyhow, some researchers are not happy with the ergotism theory either, due to the fact that the occurrences of dancing mania do not necessarily overlap geographically with the areas where rye was an important crop. But for some reason, also unknown, no outbreak of the dancing plague has been documented since the end of the 17th century. And what exactly caused these outbreaks in the first place remains unknown, but I think it's a fascinating thing that uh, there are so many accounts of it that we cannot dismiss that it was fact. It's, it's fact mm. that, that they happened, they occurred. And uh, there are several different things that uh, resulted in this uh, ending up in uh, cultural uh, discourse as well. So St. Vitus's dance is something that is still being referred to. St. Vitus, uh, by the way, being the martyr who, who is the patron saint of Prague as well. Just a bit of additional information. But uh, this is the origin, because uh, St. Vitus's dance is a bit of a crazy kind of dance. And... Uh, it uh, later became a religiously important kind of action that uh, people took in front of uh, large statues. So it was a religious act to perform uh, a St. Vitus's dance. But uh, people associate that kind of dance to this line of events. Mm -hmm. So it is the medieval dancing plague. Ah, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. I've heard about this before, but it's crazy. Yeah, it is. Very, very strange. Yeah. yeah. All right. So that was this week in skepticism, which means that we are moving on to finding out what the Pope has been up to when Pontus starts poking the Pope. Yes, all right. Uh, last Friday was the International Day for the Elimination of Sexual Violence in Conflict. Shortened pithy name, I must say. Uh, but it's, on the other hand, it's quite clear what it means. It's, it's something that was instituted by the UN six years ago. Mm. And uh, Pope Francis, um, he is, I think, 
at heart a good guy and he means well, but as usual, he gets it wrong. So he wanted to chip in and show his support and uh, he went out on Twitter and said apropos this day, and I quote the whole thing. Today is the international day for the elimination of sexual violence in conflict. Let us remember that women embody within themselves the protection of life, communion and the desire to care for all things. The way we treat women's bodies reveal our level of humanity. End quote. If you really analyze this, and of course I did, it is really very condescending. Yes, it is. As he says we and us, what he really means is we men. And we've seen this before. He doesn't include women in the human race. It's up to, quote, us men to remember too. Uh, and to remember what? We should remember what women are really for and what their purpose are. So th they are here for the protection of life, whatever what that means, probably something to do with uh, being pregnant. And they're also here, quote, and desire to care for all things. So he thinks of them as mothers and, and well, mothers, basically. Then the last sentence again, if we read it, Quote, the way we treat women's bodies reveals our level of humanity. So it's apparently up to men to, quote, treat women's bodies well or badly. Uh, but that's apparently uh, men's prerogative. And how we men do that defines our level of humanity. So men are definitely part of humanity. And that's nice. What about women? Aren't they part of humanity? And I come to think of it, I've never heard Francis say the word we in a way that includes women. Mm. He definitely think that women is another species. Yeah, just one, one thing about uh, using the form we. Uh, you know that the, when the Pope refers to himself as we oh you mean it's him that it it means that god and himself yeah but okay but if he says so it's the papal it's the papal <laughs> we the royal yeah. the royal papal we, we but i don't think we. he meant it like that this time because that it's a wee bit weird though how, how <laughs> then he you know then he says that we meaning god and himself should treat women's bodies better i don't think that's what he meant i think he meant we men in 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 a broader sense yeah if that's what he meant it's even more creepy yeah, that's I even think. yeah yeah right what do you want to do with women's bodies <laughs> come on I, I don't know I, I he wouldn't have a clue i guess i guess yeah yeah well he did ha he did have a, a girlfriend at some point he did have a girlfriend yes but he was never a father yeah and amazingly two days later it was father's day and then he had no problem identifying with fathers for some reason he spoke he's of, a holy father, come on. He's the holy father, that's right. And he made that, and he did imply a little bit that, that that's connected. Father <laughs> as a father of a child and father as a father of in, in the church. But he spoke about how hard it can be to be a father. And how, again, we all know that being a father is not an easy task. And to me, that shows that he's, he has much more empathy for men than women. He can relate to that much better. So I shouldn't labor the point too much. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. But in my <laughs> mind, he's clearly regarding 
men above women or maybe as a different species. And also, I'm sure he's not aware of how it sounds to younger, more progressive people. Yeah, but I, I'm i pretty sure that it has a lot to do with uh, the fact that he's missing this experience, mm-hmm. that uh, it always sounds ridiculous when uh, clerical people make comments about love, marital love. Yeah, marriage advice. Marital advice about rearing a child and all that kind of stuff, it sounds ridiculous. Actually, about, all about family values. They are talking a yes. lot about family values and what do yeah. they know about that? Yeah, yeah. so it sounds like, uh, yeah, they try to be empathetic and they try to apply all that empathy into making a point, but it really shines through that it still lacks the experience. Yes. That kind of comments. So. Yes, that's true. They they talk about it as if they can provide some good advice or experience, and we all know that they have none of that. All right, we we have a, the next pope, or the, rather the previous pope. It's more of a quick news update about Benedict, Pope Emeritus and Palpatine impersonator. <laughs> because the big headlines this week was that he actually left the Vatican last Thursday, and that was the first time since his retirement, except for an occasional visit uh, to Castel Gandolfo, which is the papal palace just outside of Rome. But he left Italy entirely uh, and unexpectedly to visit his brother in Germany, who is 96 years old and apparently very sick. Well, Benedict is pretty old as well. I can't remember now, but he's in his 90s. And and this is not strange at all. He, he wanted to visit perhaps a dying relative. Uh, but the fun thing is that it triggered immediately a lot of rumors or conspiracy theories. And there's at least three that I saw. So one idea was that he will never return to Rome because he's disgusted by the Vatican corruption. That was one line of thinking. Okay, maybe. <laughs> The other speculation was that he will not return because he can no longer stand Francis. So that's one thing. That is more easier to buy. That, that's, but they did meet before and Francis had explicitly given his uh, okay for him to, to go back. And the third thing I saw was that Benedict will stay in Germany now to fight the German Catholic bishop's synodal initiative. I've mentioned this before. It's the, the, the German bishops have a two-year plan to look into modernizing the rules for priests, perhaps even let them get married. And that's, that's of course, scandalous. And, and now Francis, if, if they're still friends, Francis has sent Benedict back to Germany to, to make people, you know, stop that nonsense. But, of course, we can forget all of that because he was back in Rome on Monday, just as planned. So, so it was just uh, funny speculations on, on, on people's part. Just a quick visit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was there probably. Yeah. I mean, that's very natural. His brother, he hasn't seen, I think, for several years, is now 96 years old and is sick and may probably die within, well, shortly. I don't know exactly, but... So, um, of course, he took the chance. Yeah, for, in order to know exactly when he will die, you would have to be God. So Yeah, yeah but it, it's funny to see how, how much... You would be in a very special situation, yeah, yeah. poking them. <laughs> <laughs> there was a picture of them side by side. They actually look quite alike. So they... yeah, Okay, the Palpatine brothers. <laughs> <laughs> the Palpatine brothers. <laughs> uh, they, maybe they're starting a new rock band. I don't know. <laughs> Final news this week. I just want to mention, we do need to keep track of Cardinal Pell as well, uh, the the Cardinal who used to be 
the third most um, powerful person within uh, the Catholic Church and uh, spent a whole a more than a year in prison and then was uh, the, the verdict was uh, reversed in the high court in Australia and he's now out but now we know what he did when he was uh, in prison he wrote a diary there's over mm. a thousand pages in printed form it will be when it will be published next spring probably in several volumes as well because it's so so lengthy uh, so I will for one will not buy it but he will most certainly make a fortune from it i wonder what what it's all about is it about all his exploits or no i think it, it, the few things i saw was that it was his reflections about life the universe and everything he wouldn't choose choose that particular phrase but you know what about yeah about life in general you know what if it's half as entertaining and interesting <laughs> as the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy <laughs> i would consider reading it <laughs> <laughs> yes that's fine as long as you don't pay for it yeah 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 yeah. yeah. i would download it yeah. from or borrow it don't break the law but all right that's for this week <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah quite an eventful week uh, yeah. apparently around the vatican thank you very much pontus thank you and that means that we're moving on to discussing the news all right no separate coronavirus update segment today but i'm afraid we won't be able to leave covid19 out of this episode because corona is everywhere yeah yeah yeah, yeah. germany has been uh, actually praised for the way they have managed to handle the coronavirus situation they started testing like crazy right at the onset of the pandemic. And by combining the testing with a semi-strict lockdown, the most populous country of Europe managed to keep the disease at bay with a relatively low 9,000 deaths altogether so far, which is really phenomenal compared to some other countries. Of course, as a result, people don't feel like the restrictions are really necessary. Just as usual. Yeah. It's when you avoid a catastrophe, then you don't feel that yeah. it would have been a catastrophe. If it, if, it, if it works, it wasn't necessary, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's crazy. And obviously we can see an alarming rate of rising unrests in the country about the, the restrictions, which have now been lifted in some places. So it's, it's not easy, but it looks like a new super spreading event has been identified uh, that happened over the last week in North Rhine-Westphalia, in the Güterschloch district. And one of Europe's largest meat processing plants uh, that belongs to the company named Tönnies, more than one and a half thousand people have been infected with the novel coronavirus, hmm. just within the plant. Last Wednesday, the reports only mentioned 650 positive test results, but on Saturday, the numbers were updated and it went, they went up to 1,331 out of a little bit more than 6,000 tests conducted among the employees. Ah. So as of Monday, uh, the numbers are above 1,500 and about 7,000 people were quarantined over the weekend as a result of it. And one of the reasons why I think uh, this case is very important uh, to mention even here is that it demonstrates perfectly how a pandemic situation develops. North Rhine-Westphalia is the most populous state of the German Federal Republic, with close to 20 million people living there. It's densely populated, crazy dense. We have a super spreading center now, 
where one in four employees are infected. Now, these employees have families, friends. They probably go home at the end of the day, yeah. (laughs) Exactly, at the end of every day. So they definitely have made contacts with, with lots of others. If they want to stop this, the authorities, there are two ways. With contact tracing and testing everyone in the network of people that the infected got in touch with and quarantining all of them, you can contain the virus and prevent further spreading of it into larger, the larger public. But the other way is to completely lock down the, com- the whole area. But the company seems to find it more important to ensure the employees' privacy than to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem very cooperative uh, with the authorities. So the more drastic measures are already being considered, which is a lockdown of the whole region. Wow. And I don't have to explain it why that shouldn't happen. It it has all kinds of economic and societal repercussions. Uh, people will get angry. People will even lose even more faith in the government, in the public institutions. But if contact tracing cannot be done, no matter what the reason behind it is, how people go against it and how people don't want to use it, lockdown is the only real way to tackle the situation. Yeah. So either contact tracing and isolating people and trying to contain it or complete lockdown. And this is something that we need to talk more about on a larger scale. On the one hand, there's an outcry over government control, which is understandable, but there are many ways now that contact tracing can work. We've seen all these applications, the phone applications that are anonymous and they can trigger a warning that someone should take a test and quarantine themselves without revealing their identity to anyone. So, these are brilliant applications that have been developed for that. Uh, they should just be used, but people are afraid of uh, losing their privacy and uh, losing their data and everything over it. So we need to make the priorities clear. But that requires clear and open communication as well mm. from the authorities' point of view and towards the public. Without that, we're left with beliefs, conspiracy theories, and the virus that just keeps spreading and we're going to be screwed until the vaccine is here. And when we consider that the vaccine will be something that a lot of people will not be willing to take, uh, that becomes another issue that that further just escalates the situation. Mm. So it's a serious issue. It's an, a warning, basically. This uh, super spreading event is a warning that this will happen until we are completely immunized. Yeah, but it's a hell of a task to try to contact tracing on all of these people. I mean, if you do it, try to do it manually by, you know, phoning up every, it, it becomes unmanageable. I don't know how to do it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. And uh, this is why this is why there's a bit of a panic going on over there now, from the authorities' point of view. Yeah, I think they, they sometimes it's good to panic. It's yeah. a tough decision to make yes. to go back to lockdown. Yeah. It's something that will not be taken lightly by either side. Just a quick update on this. Uh, right after we finished recording the episode, uh, we received the news that the city of Gütersloh and its namesake district is now in complete lockdown. That means that basically 100,000 people have been quarantined again uh, in the area. Hopefully, the lockdown will not have to be extended to the whole federal state of North Rhine-Westphalia. But as of now, that remains uncertain. Of course, we will keep an eye out for what's happening and let you know. By the way, thanks to our lovely friend, German correspondent and occasional co-host, Onika, for this catch. Thank you very much. 
All right. Uh, last week I referred to one of the quacks in Sweden who had been stopped for making stupid health claims about fish mm-hmm. oil. We've talked about it actually yeah, yeah. twice now. Uh, and uh, more of that kind of illegal marketing will come later in the show. But the next corona quack to bite the dust is Annika Dahlqvist. She is a now-retired Swedish MD. She received a Swedish skeptic's Confounderer of the Year award back in 2009. And I know confounderer is not really a Swed- an English word, but... Is that a Swedish word? It's a, well, if you, if you do a direct translation, it becomes confounderer. And I think it sounds good in English as well. Funny in, in a way as well. <laughs> anyway, she received that prize in 2009 for writing books and spreading misinformation regarding made-up links between food and cancer and similar things. She has now, during the spring, encouraged people to self-medicate against the coronavirus. And she's talked about colloidal silver and keeping a diet and blah, blah, blah. Even if she's officially retired, she has kept her medical license, and which is, of course, very common. But the Health and Social Care Inspectorate, IVO for our Swedish listeners, uh, are now quoted as saying... Uh, Annika Dahlqvist has this demonstrated herself to be blatantly unsuitable to practice as a doctor, end quote. Aye. Boom. Aye. <laughs> yeah. So they also said that it's dangerous for Annika Dahlqvist to give non-evidence-based health advice as a registered MD. So they decided to take away her license. Mm-hmm. So very good. But I don't think they can stop her publishing stupid advice as a private citizen and unfortunately some people will still listen to her anyway but it's a good statement from the ivo to revoke her license we'll see what happens with other quacks like this i think it's good that the authorities goes after these quacks and don't let that just happen and spread I tend to agree, but uh, I'm afraid that is a double-edged sword. Mm. Look at what what happened to people like Wakefield. Yeah, so that's true. He he was expelled from the association, and um, I don't know if it pushed him towards this doubling down kind of attitude. But it takes a real, a really intelligent and uh, and open and secure person to admit that. You know what? I probably made a mistake. I, I was probably wrong. So I will turn my back to towards what I used to think and preach. But most likely, she will just double down and uh, right. But start claiming that the authorities are trying to silence her and that kind of stuff that that we usually see among these people. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. But I mean, what else? What else can you do? I mean, you have to make a stand against these quacks and, and tell them. And, and it gives us That's right. us rational people uh, something to say. Uh, if you hear about somebody quoting her, etc. do you know she lost her medical license because she's a quack? That is an argument that you can make. And that is the important part, I think, yeah. that uh, it, it, it becomes, thus, it becomes a communicational issue. Mm. Not, not, not that much of an issue, but a, a more of a task that you want to communicate this fact. Yeah. And I think the authorities, and this, this is part of the responsibility of the authorities as well, because just simply dismissing these people, kicking them out of the register is not enough. They have to communicate why that happened and that it it has happened for the sake of the public. Yeah. And I think, as I quoted, I think they did motivate that yeah. pretty well. 
Yeah. Good, really good. But it looks like we are referring a lot back to last week's episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> last week, we covered in the news the topic of climate models and based it on an article in The Guardian by Jonathan Watts. That article uh, claimed that uh, worst-case scenarios in long-term climate modelling tend to underestimate the expected temperature rise compared to pre-industrial levels by as much as 2 degrees. Now, obviously, that gained a lot of attention. People were shocked. Uh, it it made the news uh, probably everywhere around the world. And it got a lot of professional attention as well. Uh, and the thing we've held up as accurate for a long time, accurate predictions, is actually false and it doesn't worth anything. Have you ever heard of climate feedback? I wouldn't want to define it right, uh, off the cuff, no. Okay, <laughs> so it's a non-profit organization registered in France. And, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It is very much like a scientific fact-checking website, mm. an online tool, if you like, for annotating scientific content, which is really cool, I think. It's a, it's a kind of a peer review process for content published outside the usual peer-reviewed journals uh, where scientific articles are usually published. Anyway, six scientists from different institutes or from different fields of climate science reviewed this article, Watts article, and concluded that it tends to exaggerate the importance of this new model. Mm -hmm. It makes misleading claims, mm -hmm. especially in the title, and applies a fair amount of cherry-picking. Okay. So, so we're good then. There's no problem. <laughs> Climate is so fine. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but we have to, <laughs> we have to be more cautious. So yeah. Some of the six researchers appreciate that a new climate model that has been more fitted to current observational data had a tendency to show a higher carbon dioxide sensitivity than, than others. But the problem is that this particular model, outlined in the Guardian article, fails to represent the last hundred years or so as accurately as most models do and... As a result, it can hardly be described as a good indicator of what to expect in the future. Mm. Now, if you can't predict the past, how can it predict the future? Yeah, so you see, one of the major ways of testing a model is when you feed it with data, it should describe the past as accurately as possible yeah. in order for the predictions to be reliable or considered reliable. Obviously, we know what the past uh, the last hundred years looked like. So if the model can tell us exactly what we saw, then it's a good indication that a model might fit the actual phenomena. So it's misleading to claim that a doomsday scenario is likely based on this model that fails to live up to regular expectations uh, that we, we hold up towards a model. The other thing that we did have a bit of a debate over, if you remember that, on last week's episode... Mm, the clouds. Yes, is the claim that the importance of the effect of clouds have largely been underestimated in other climate models and this one corrects for that <laughs> well that was actually something that raised my eyebrows as well and this is why we we had a discussion but the bottom line is it's bollocks <laughs> okay that's the technical term is it that's the technical term it's not used by these researchers but <laughs> <laughs> it's obvious that the clouds amplify warming and i think i've mentioned that uh, on on the last episode and it's taken into account in current models as well but it's not an extreme effect which is basically the starting point of this uh, article that it's a much greater effect than uh, than we used to think and that would obviously lead to a conclusion 
that we need to consider a five degree increase in global temperatures in a worst case scenario instead of the three degree as a worst case scenario. But these six climate scientists conclude that the article was a sensationalized interpretation of cherry picked data in order to have that shocking effect that we're all doomed, whereas it basically contradicts the current scientific consensus in the matter that is based on a lot of currently used models. And as skeptics, we know that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which ultimately this article written by Jonathan Watt seems to be lacking. Mm. So All right. I'm not saying that we can lean back and uh, feel like <laughs> everything is okay. No. <laughs> but the doomsday scenario might not be as harsh as this article suggested. It was a bit overstated. It, is, it was, yes. <laughs> All right. Okay. Speaking of unreliable data, okay. I, I have mentioned before the dangers and the difficulties with COVID statistics. And it is hard. People may be aware that for some weeks now, the Spanish authorities has refused to publish any such statistics, which of course, Ooh. that's raised quite a few eyebrows. Well, as of last Friday, they have apparently tried to do their homework and now we are now getting numbers from Spain again. They have upgraded the numbers of COVID deaths by a little more than a thousand compared with the, the previous number, which was 12 days before. But it seems to me like they're still failing and failing quite a lot because if you look you could always compare with the excess deaths yeah. and compare that with the number of reported COVID deaths. As of last Friday, Spain reported officially 28,000, a little bit more than 28,000 deaths in COVID. But the total excess deaths in Spain this year is 43,000. So that means the official COVID numbers only explain two-thirds, or little less actually, than two-thirds of the total excess deaths this year. And that doesn't really make sense. We have said before that there could be, a, and probably is, a fraction that should be explained by people avoiding normal health care or, or some cancelled operations and, and such. But still, it seems unlikely that that's all of it. I think they are still not managing to correctly report numbers uh, even if they've now started to do so again i still think they understate the numbers hmm. so so maybe i think one of the takeaways from this pandemic is that many countries and we realize that now they are not prepared or equipped to handle statistics correctly uh, especially when it comes to to un expected things like this pandemic mm -hmm. mm. that's right mm. and it's a little bit suspicious and that is something that we don't need these days no. to just feed conspiracy theories because it really reminds me of something uh <laughs> when last year when we had the general elections here in hungary on election day when the polling stations were closed mm. so lots of people were lining up they were not sent away they were allowed to vote but then after that about four hours lapsed without any information pouring in no numbers and the government orban's government claimed that the servers broke down for some weird reason and everyone was expecting a win of the opposition and then when the servers came back online <laughs> all of a sudden surprise it was a win for the government and uh, that yeah really fed a lot of 
conspiracy theories yeah. and i'm not even convinced that they didn't do anything mm. and uh if uh imagine that i'm not saying that the spanish government does that right now with the number covid numbers but we have to be aware of the consequences of our actions like that yeah. so if we hesitate to publish things and we do things like that then people will start speculating yeah, yeah. And, in, and in in the case of spain i don't think it's maliciousness i, I don't think they do it on purpose i think yeah, yeah. or trying to cover i think they're just incompetent or not prepared to do it so yeah, yeah probably or i can imagine that uh, because they are very badly hit the healthcare system is probably overwhelmed exactly and uh, they cannot keep up with the statistical work and that's a lot of data output that they they would have to provide yeah, yeah. And that is something that, that has to be taken care of. Mm. Talking about Spain, mm -hmm. uh, one of the Spanish skeptical organizations, ARPSAPC, or the Society for the Advancement of Critical Thinking, has a habit of uh, awarding people outside of their organization for promoting the development and dissemination of science and education, critical thinking, and reason. The name of the award is the Skeptical Magnifier. Mm -hmm. And this year, the ceremony took place in a lovely cafeteria with everyone wearing masks. Uh, I Standing two <laughs> meters away from each other, yes? Oh, not necessarily, but uh, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I see I see a photo on the website with a couple of people who attended the event and they all wear masks, uh, including that woman that I think is Antonia de Oñate, mm. uh, who's the Antonia. executive director of the organization and whom we had on the show probably even twice i think so yeah so the name of the award is uh skeptical magnifier and uh the plaque went to jose antonio lopez guerrero a microbiologist and a television and radio presenter uh who is very big uh, on popularizing science and uh, i'd like to congratulate him and I hope the Spanish skeptics will keep having people to award for their wonderful efforts all over the country. Yeah, hooray. Uh, yeah. We have, of course, been following the hydroxychloroquine circus in the past. Mm -hmm. And let's just repeat that there has been no good data supporting the claims that hydroxychloroquine is effective against COVID-19. And maybe, but that's not clear, it could be dangerous or it's neutral. Who knows? But since the scandal with data from uh, Surges Fair led to studies being retracted about hydroxychloroquine, uh, testing has now been resumed again. Only now further research have a new problem into hydroxychloroquine, mm -hmm. and that is lack of participants. So quite understandably, people do not feel comfortable to volunteer for studies uh, which involve testing hydroxychloroquine anymore. Novartis, the pharmaceutical company, announced last Saturday that they had to fold their ongoing study because of this. They said in a statement that they had found no safety concerns, but... The data was not enough, and it wasn't enough to draw any conclusions about effectiveness either. Uh, and personally, my, my admittedly non-scientific impression is that we shouldn't keep beating this dead horse. But uh, I guess it's unfortunate not to get to the bottom of this and get a final conclusion. But it reminds me, Andras, we talked uh, of... Uh, line uh, the other day about uh, something like this the pandemic has for good or bad given 
given the public a crash course in how messy science is. And this is an illustration of this. Yeah. People tend to think about science as this clean machine, this process with clear paths and convincing results. But now everyone gets an insight into the ups and downs and backs and forth uh, of what it really is. And it, I guess it could hurt the reputation of science, but also it spreads a better understanding, hopefully, of how things really are. Reality is messy and complicated, and, and we should, shouldn't should expect science to just come in and say, this is how it is first time around. It takes time to really get to the bottom of things. Yeah, and this could be told about uh, the item that I covered earlier mm. regarding that article about the climbing model. Yes, yes. That uh, one could argue that uh, it, it ruins uh, and it, it harms the, the reputation of science, but it doesn't, and it shouldn't. If it's communicated well, it is a good opportunity for us to communicate that science works by peer-reviewing stuff. And it works by checking each other's works and finding the flaws in each other's works so that they can be corrected. And in a way, the hydroxychloroquine situation was brought about by that approach as well. So someone published an article that was bollocks, basically based on on, on not real data. And uh, then others pointed that out, and that led to the retraction. But the problem is that because of the lack of that communication, people feel like they're being abandoned, they're being left in the dark by science, and uh, they don't know what to think. And it's it's very similar to what the, we see in the vaccination movement. Mm. No matter how much research shows that there is no connection between vaccination and autism, the damage has been done and it cannot be undone. Right. That kind of damage that people have this mindfuck in their heads about uh, the dangers of, of vaccination. And of course, the other side is that science is very subtle. It doesn't say that vaccines are completely safe, and it shouldn't say that. But that kind of nuance is difficult to communicate. Because if you say that it's about risk management, and it's about what is the, it proposes the greater risk, and what is the bigger danger that you have to face. And uh, it's a nuanced thing, and it's difficult to understand. So we try to think in absolutes, and science doesn't think in absolutes. And this is why, no matter how they say that, it's probably safe, but we need to f to, to be sure. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is now a bad thing uh, mm. in the public eye. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it cannot be undone. Yeah, I already referred back to the, the climate models that I talked about earlier and how we should interpret them. And I was talking about the scientific and the science side of things. But there is another, probably even more important side of tackling climate change, not, not, not just uh, coronavirus and this pandemic situation. And that is how much support the actions have, public support. We can argue about the exact numbers, uh, but the science is pretty much clear. So ultimately, it all boils down to just how much do people trust the science and how much they care about climate change. Now, researchers of the University of Oxford's Reuters Institute carried out an online survey at the beginning of this year and published it on their annual digital news report. They asked 80,000 people from 40 countries about their knowledge and attitudes regarding climate change. It was not a representative survey, I have to add, because 
it had a strong bias towards people having access to the internet, which not all of the countries surveyed could provide in a large scale to start with. But it's a pretty large sample size they work with. So I'd say, let's try to formulate an idea of what people who have online information within reach uh, tend to think of the issue. But let's take it with a grain of salt, because it's not representative. Overall, the results seem to be encouraging. Mm -hmm. Close to 70% of the respondents think of climate change as a very or extremely serious problem. Mm -hmm. However, it's a bit of a shock that respondents from Belgium, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and the Netherlands don't seem to give much of a fuck about it. <laughs> really? Only around half of them think that it's a serious problem. Oh, oh boy, I'm surprised. Yeah, uh, me too. The researchers argue, however, that concern over climate change might be on the rise, contrary to what we uh, tend to think based on that what, you, what I just said. But they only have a completely different survey from 2015 to compare their results to. So I'd be more cautious with that conclusion. I'm not sure if it's on the rise. Oh. Uh, what is interesting, though, is that political leaning seems to have a lot to do with how we see climate change. It's not much of a surprise, but they found that across all the countries, among left-leaning respondents, 81% agrees it's a very or extremely serious issue, 71% in the centre, and only 58% of right-leaning people seem to support that thought. In Sweden, it's even lower than that. Wow. For right-wing people, it seems to be only 26% who think that it's a very or extremely serious problem. So... What do you think is going on in Sweden? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I'm shocked. I'm telling you, I'm shocked. I wonder if it has something to do with a Sweden, Sweden Democrat, actually. Mm, or yeah, aren't they opposing <laughs> the climate change situation? Or it's not one of the biggest or the most important things. Not a big no, issue. No, no, no. Okay. That's not what they're talking too much about uh, you're putting me on a spot here. I don't remember. They are not scientific in other questions so uh yeah, okay. so uh, I, I don't know <laughs> they also actually lost quite a lot of uh, support over the spring which is very good news oh yeah, okay yeah. okay but is that based on uh, on survey data yeah or? yes yes okay yeah okay. i'm sure it'll change before we have an election what about uh, greta thunberg is she popular back home i think mostly yes and, okay. But there are some people who try to mock her and they are very loud, but I don't think there are too many. Anyhow, according to this survey, almost 9% thinks in Sweden that it's not, be, not a big deal, this whole climate change thing. Hmm. 9% is quite high because the overall average for this survey is 3%. Hmm. <laughs> so Sweden is definitely around the top. Uh, uh, the U United States seems to be on the top. But in Europe, it's Sweden that leads the chart. There you go. Also, not surprisingly, one third of people get their climate-related news from the telly, apparently. And it's an even higher percentage when we look at people older than 55 years. But I'm surprised that even people under the age of 24 seem to rely on TV very much. At least one in four of them gets their information from television, hmm. which I would, wouldn't have thought to be the case. What is concerning is the number of people who don't even pay attention to the issue. 32% of those who don't consider it a serious problem don't follow it at all. So because well, they think that it's it's not that important, they don't follow it. And that means that they don't get the information 
that would be able to convince them otherwise. Yeah, but it's not surprising if you if if you if you feel that this is not something I need to be concerned about, you won't follow the news about it either. So it's natural from that point of view. Yeah, obviously, I, this is why I didn't find it surprising, but I find it concerning. Yeah. But what I find surprising is this: two percent of the respondents who think it's very or extremely serious of an issue still don't pay attention to climate related information <laughs> so one would maybe, think maybe that... this is the older generation they know they will die before it happens anyway so yeah you know i know i know it's i know it's terrible i know it's serious uh, i know we're all gonna die if we don't do anything but uh, i'm not really interested <laughs> <laughs> it's uh... yeah but on the other hand i compare this to people who know they have health issues serious health problems and still don't do anything. Or people who know exactly how harmful smoking is, but they keep fucking smoking. So yeah. but, I yeah. think it's that kind of attitude. That, yeah, I know it's a serious issue, but I don't care. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a sort of denial of something that you yeah. can't do anything about. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So I'm not going to walk through the whole survey, but we'll share the link to the, to the results on the website. I just think that we need more surveys, representative ones, that we can wave at politicians. And at the same time, people need to be made more aware of what's going on with our world so that those politicians will have a drive to satisfy the public, mm. saving our asses and playing the long game as a result. So, uh, yeah, we need more data, we need representative data, and we need action. Here, here. All right, some positive news then. Good. From Norway. In Norway, I guess there's been some confusion this far about what is real medicine and what is pure snake oil. <laughs> well, I'm being <laughs> mean, of course, but as a consequence, all kinds of treatments have been tax-exempt when it comes to VAT. Uh, whether it's uh, what uh, Edsard Ernst would call scam, so-called alternative medicine, or real medicine. Yeah. Uh, we don't like that over here at the ESP headquarters, do we, Andras? Not, not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> the good news, then, is that it seems to be changing. There is a register in Norway where you can be listed as an alternative practitioner. It's open to acupuncturists, homeopaths, healing therapists, reflexologists, etc., etc. Uh, there's even something called quantum physicians. I don't know what even what know what that is. Is that that's new? It's very, they are very small <laughs> <laughs> and unreliable. You never know what state they're in. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, and they can teleport. Yeah, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the rule seems to be that if you're in that register. You are exempt from VAT, which in um, Norway, if I understand it correctly, is 25%. So that means a, it's a big benefit because it means the customer doesn't have to pay VAT. So it translates into a lower price for their services, so-called services. Or the same price for the services and more for you. Ah, that may be absolutely correct. Who, who would notice in Norway? <laughs> Oh, yeah, everything is so expensive. That something is expensive. <laughs> Nobody. But okay. what's changing now is that most of the political parties seem to agree that this should change. And a proposal is being prepared to change this. There's only one party that is resisting it a bit, and that is Framskrittspartiet, 
<laughs> or the progress party that wants to exclude some categories but they have uh, they're the third biggest party but they only have 16 percent of the seats in the parliament so that should still go through but if all goes as expected the law will change by 1st of january next year and uh, old practices will be treated just like hairdressers and other services and that's what they deserve so um but there will still be, though, an exception for uh, for VAT if you're referred to one of these practitioners from a proper GP. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I hopefully that doesn't happen too much. So good news: a scam will no longer be tax exempt in uh, from from VAT purposes in in Norway from first of January next year. Yeah, that's good news indeed. Well, we just need other political bodies to do something and move forward, and. Uh, well, the European Commission has been determined to counter disinformation across Europe. And since the rise of the pandemic, we've seen how important it is to preserve the trust in the public institutions and science as well. Disinformation campaigns, false and misleading information have become a part of our everyday lives, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, yeah. we cannot deny that. But as High Representative Josef Borrell, I, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he said that disinformation in times of the coronavirus can kill. And I couldn't agree more. Mm, it's true. Him and Vice uh, President for Values and Transparency, uh, Vera Jourova, uh, went on to call for caution and a proper appreciation of the gravity of the situation. And they didn't fail to mention how, alongside these disinformation efforts coming from within the EU, because there are those coming from the, within the EU, foreign actors and third countries, Russia and China in particular, have been identified by the European External Action Service and the Commission as perpetrators of targeted influence operations and disinformation campaigns. Big surprise. Yeah, big surprise. But what is a big surprise about this is that they actually named them, yeah, yeah. which is politically a big step. Mm. It is something that we have to acknowledge. Hundreds of harmful narratives from pro-Kremlin sources have been detected and exposed on the website EU versus Disinfo. Uh, I haven't come across that uh, website before, but I checked it out, and it's pretty cool. I think it's a good collection of uh, exposed uh, actions, harmful actions. Yorova said as well, and I quote, I strongly believe that a geopolitically strong EU can only materialize if we are assertive and name the issues we face. If we have evidence, we should not shy away from naming and shaming mm. end quote that's good that is a great step forward i think that has to be done on a larger scale she also said that disinformation will continue and vaccination will be the next battlefield and unfortunately those of us who are as skeptics are in the front line of countering disinformation know exactly what she's talking about yeah. and unfortunately we have to agree both Borrell and Yorova expressed a lack of optimism regarding the future which is a bit of a shame but also called for a large-scale collaboration they called up on social media platforms as well for more transparency and visible efforts into tackling COVID-19 misinformation but um, others expressed concern that it raises regulatory issues that could even backfire but one thing is for sure we need to make more effort we need more resources and more action. But for that, we need to understand what's going on and what the major issues we need to deal with are. What are the most popular beliefs, sources of misleading information and disinformation campaigns? Uh, so this is one of the reasons we keep doing this podcast as well. Mm. 
we may have very long news segments <laughs> like this one, <laughs> but it's only because we want to be as comprehensive about the issues that we need to tackle on a European uh, level as we can. Yeah, and you me- you mentioned uh, vaccine, yeah, anti-vaccine sentiments and anti-vaccine mm-hmm. propaganda, and uh, unfortunately, the last news item we have today is about that, oh. and it's about Italy. There was a poll in Italy made uh, in May that shows that nearly half the Italian population would not want to be vaccinated against COVID-19. More than half. Yeah. The resistance is higher in central Italy and in the population over 35 years of age. And it's a bit lower in in younger people. So Italy is big on anti-vaccination sentiments. We know that since before, especially we've had a very high number of uh, measles cases in uh, 2018 and beginning of last year as well due to this and i'm i'm not sure why it is um uh, you you would think they'd learned their lesson after the the measles epidemic but uh, these things are are seldom very rational yeah and all over the world really the anti-vaxxers are mobilizing against a coming vaccine and they they talk about how dangerous it is even though we don't even have it yet and they say we need to counter it and we need to stop it and stuff but we in the skeptical movement really need to take this issue seriously and mobilize against these anti-vaxxers it's really worrying i don't know what exactly we should do except trying to keep informing people about science and how it works but um, yeah i'm worried yeah i think one of the the greatest issues with this is that uh, we lack the resources in the skeptical movement if we look around europe we only knew a couple know a couple of people who do this uh, as a profession mm. and do this day by day uh, as as work and we should have more people doing that yeah uh, we should have people working with the European Union, with the European Commission, and uh, we struggle keeping keeping things afloat uh, with uh, an umbrella organization as well, that uh, the EXO, uh, which is understandable. Everyone has their own life to live and their own work to do, and uh, that makes it uh, even more difficult. Uh, and that is an advantage that uh, usually the anti-vax- anti-vaxxers have because they can build an emotionally driven movement. Right, And yeah. because it's emotionally driven, people are much more willing to support it. And this is why we are so, so grateful for everyone who supports us. Mm. Obviously, it's, not, it's it doesn't mean that we can quit our jobs um, as a result, but... Uh, if we support each other, those who, who do a lot of work in the movement, that can make a great change. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, of course, there are many organizations you could support. But if you want to support us a little bit, yeah. you could go to patreon.com slash the ESP and pledge uh, a, a dollar or two or three per episode. You could also set a ceiling for every uh, month if you say i want to give two dollars per episode but no more than four per month that's also okay that's fine everything helps and we would appreciate it very much exactly and uh, it covers all the costs and uh, if the, the world reopens and we manage to go and uh, build the networks and that kind of stuff that that's what it, it it goes into apart from uh, maintaining the website maintaining the the hosting services and uh, and buying equipment that we can uh, exactly. do the show with yeah 
No, we our time is uh, for free. We we do this for free. It's for the expenses. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But we have uh, walked through all the news items that we wanted to cover this week. Quite a few of them. But that means that a lot is going on in Europe. <laughs> and it, the list doesn't seem to be shorter by the week. But we still have another thing, a really interesting thing that we cover week by week. And that is when someone has been really wrong or really right. So let's walk out on a positive note here. Uh, I want to do a really right again. Uh, this is an example that I hope several countries should take after, and uh, perhaps some of them already do. The Swedish Food Safety Agency sent out a press release earlier this month to clarify exactly what the rules are for advertisement of supplements or foodstuff. What are you allowed to say and what is forbidden? So the rules are general for everything, but the reason that they sent it out is because of COVID-19 and they mentioned that especially. So what you can say applies to COVID-19, but just as much to anything else. They point out that there is no evidence that any supplement or any type of food protects from coronavirus or cures the COVID-19 disease. You cannot say that anything protects, cures or treats a disease. Medical statements may only be made regarding registered medicine. Also, it's prohibited to make uh, health claims about food unless such a statement has been approved by the EU. If a company does any of the above, they are breaking the law. The the Swedish Food Safety Agency published an email address encouraging the public to report any company that you see are breaking these rules. They say that they are actively looking for companies because not only is it illegal, but it's also dangerous. They point out what we always point out as well is that even if a supplement or food is harmless in itself, some of them are not, but even if they are, people may delay proper treatment because they have been getting misinformation. They take some supplement instead of seeking out a doctor. Also, all advertisement of supplements must provide a proper contact information. And that's especially not always the case uh, when it comes to online or so to, to web pages and such. And then they clarify what is legal to say. And that's interesting too. You may state what is in the product and actually you have to say what is in the product. And you can say that it quote unquote includes iron if that's the case. And, and then... Unfortunately, and that's my comment, you may, may use the phrase substance X contribute to normal function of Y, if that is relevant and if that substance actually is in the product. And this statement must be approved, as I said, by the EU Commission. You may recognize this from me making fun of one of the Swedish cracks last week who had copied that phrase seven times into six sentences <laughs> in the description <laughs> yeah, of that yeah. ridiculously overpriced uh, fish oil. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So good for the Swedish Food Safety Agency. And it's great that they're actively asking for tips about companies who are breaking these rules. Really good. Yeah. But of course, when they posted this press release on their official Facebook page... The alternative conspiracy nuts went bananas in the comments. 
<laughs> can you can you mix nuts and bananas in the same thing? Maybe it's banana nuts. <laughs> Probably. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, did they get uh, edits out? Or? Yeah. What they did was they tried to reply to every comment and and encounter every <laughs> every false statement. But then they gave up. No, but they gave up, and then in the end they said, "We are trying. We have tried." They put a new post saying, "We have tried to counter all the comments here." But instead, we're now going just to post this new link, which go to the web page, which clearly states what the rules are. And, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, no, okay. yeah, people can't take this, especially and as you said before, it's it's emotional. So people, yeah. they're not rational. They just go, well, yeah, not. you know, it's censorship and, and big pharma and whatever it is. All right. So, for proactively trying to stop illegal health claims regarding coronavi coronavirus and food supplements, the Swedish Food Safety Agency gets today's prize for being really right. And I hope that other countries have similar initiatives going. Yeah, and if uh, some of our listeners know about something like that that we probably haven't come across because we just missed it, just let us know. We would like to know what's going on in other countries in that regard. So, do get in touch and uh, you will hear uh, the different ways that you can get in touch with us at the end of the show uh, but because this basically concludes the episode uh, I would like to say goodbye with a quote yeah and this quote comes from Ricky Gervais British comedian actor and producer so it goes like this Science is constantly proved all the time. You see, if we took something like any fiction, any holy book and any other fiction and destroyed it, in a thousand years' time, that wouldn't come back just as it was. Whereas if we took every science book and every fact and destroyed them all, in a thousand years, they'd all be back because all the same tests would be the same result. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. It's a pretty good overall understanding of how science describes how the world works and not just fictionalized stuff. It tries to say that sci science is real. I mean, yeah, it is. you don't, yeah. atoms won't disappear just because we forget that they're there. Anyhow, the, this was our episode 228. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. For joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. We will keep coming back. And until next week, goodbye. Paka paka no hey do this lad This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook.
I don't know how you can believe. An independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics, and interviews with people most. Re- <laughs> I said it was long. Homeopathist. Homeopathist. <laughs> Homeopathist? Yeah. Is that now? Sense? It's homeopaths. Yeah, that's homeopaths. right. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> homeopaths. Okay. Homeopaths. <laughs> that's funny. I don't only hate homeopaths. I hate that word too. Yeah. Okay. Good. It's difficult to say. So this is what you are allowed or uh, for fuck's sake. I was drunk when I wrote this. <laughs> you should probably drink mm. more than now. Uh, probably. Bring you up to speed. <laughs> Alla prossima. <laughs> Alla prossima.